Good afternoon. Today we are going to talk some more about how Jesus was the fulfillment of the Old Covenant. And, uh, and today we're going to talk about one of the most significant and important ways, and it's a way that has such a great impact on us. And before we get into specifics today of what I want to talk about, I do want to address something I think is important. That these, these Old Covenant ceremonies and symbols were so significant. If they were so significant, why don't we as Christians still participate in them? I mean, I've been talking about different feast days and things like that, and so, so, so why don't we, we still participate in them? And they had great symbols and deep meaning. Why don't we still keep the feasts? And there are some, some reasons why not. And I just wanted to share that just kind of as an as a introduction, as the beginning here today. But the first reason why not is because we practically and physically can't keep the feasts. Almost every single one of these uh, had two significant elements. First, they had a priesthood and a system of priests. In this system of priests, uh, it, it was not just something that people did in their homes. They, they didn't do it. They didn't go to the neighborhood synagogue and, and do these things. Th these feasts all occurred uh, at the temple. And they were regulated by the priests. And we don't have those anymore. In, in fact, uh, in order to be a priest, you had to be from the house of Aaron. And you had to go through certain rites and purifications to be able to participate. And there's no longer that priesthood. It's not in existence. We don't know who the descendants of Aaron are. When the Romans burned down the, the second temple in 6970 AD, they burned it down, and in that temple were the genealogies. And they're gone. There, there weren't copies of it somewhere else. They're gone. We, we can't tell who, who's in the priesthood any longer. Second, there isn't a temple or a tabernacle. Um, people have talked about rebuilding one, and some people think that they, they have the land for it. They, <coughs> they think they could rebuild all the articles for the temple and do it just like it says to do it. And, and mostly I think these are just really bad fundraisers, to be honest with you, because um, they're always raising money. We're going to build the third temple, and we, we're going to take over the land on the... On the uh, uh, the Temple Mount and all of this kind of stuff. And um, I even got invited to go to one one time where they were talking about it. I declined. But they were, they've even talked about building a, a replica of, of wherever, you know, they decide to build it. I, I think we have to ask a couple of questions, though, like, one, where's the Ark? Where's the Ark of the Covenant? You see, even in the second temple, Herod's temple, even in the second temple, when they, they rebuilt it and they, they put it in there, did you know that the Holy of Holies was empty? There was nothing in it. There were no articles in it because when Babylon took over, they took all the articles out. We don't know where the Ark of the Covenant went. We're pretty sure it's not in a cave somewhere guarded by the Knights Templar, but we don't really know. And, and we just have no idea where the Ark of the Covenant is. Now, some people make uh, assumptions. They say things like, well, Jeremiah hid it in a cave under the Temple Mount, and there's a bunch of rabbis that think it's under there, and they want to do deep penetrating radar to try and find the chamber where the, temp where, where the covenant Ark of the Covenant is hidden, but, but we, don't, we don't have one. We don't have the Ark of the Covenant. Now, Jesus did kind of suggest that the second temple did serve as a place of worship because Jesus worshiped there. But it is significant to note that the glory of the Lord never filled that temple. 
And finally, there's this other reason. All of the feasts require animal sacrifices by priests on specific altars. So when you read through all of these feasts, they all required sacrifices of some kind. And they they all had these articles and these things that had to be done just right, and they had to be done in the way that God said to do it. In fact, uh, you know, if you offered strange fire, you did it wrong. Uh, It didn't go well for you. Ask Aaron's sons, right? It didn't go well for you. And so you have to offer these these, uh, animal sacrifices. I don't know what you think, but in today's world, can you imagine exactly how that would go? Right? I, I, I don't think that would be going very well. I mean, Peter would be on the Temple Mount, right? They, they, would, uh, they would have some big-time problems with animal sacrifices. And even if you looked at the population of the world for a moment, and you think about the population of how many Christians there are right now, think about how many sacrifices would have to be offered. That's not practical, right? That's not practical. Now, you might remember this, but back in the days before Venmo and Apple Pay and things, there was a thing called a checkbook. I I know for some of you, you don't remember this. It it was actually a physical paper that you would write on with a pen. That's a writing instrument that had ink in it. And, and, And then you would put the amount on it and you would use it as a type of exchange. I know, this sounds weird, right? But the bank would receive these checks as legal tender. And, and, and then they would settle up with whatever financial institution they originated from. Now, the bank used to process these things, and they would put their little stamp on it, and when they would put their stamp on it, they would send it back to the bank where it came from. And those of us that are really old, we used to get things called bank statements in the mail. And, and these bank statements actually had the checks that you wrote in them. They would actually physically return the checks. I'm not even kidding. And, and so you could see the returned check that you had written, and it had all the stamps and the signatures on it, and you could verify, okay, the money went to where it was supposed to go. That was way back in the day. But once the check was fulfilled, its purpose, other than as a record, was done. It, it, it was no longer significant. In fact, it wouldn't work anymore. You couldn't use it again. You couldn't like, you know, recycle it and say, oh, let's try this again. You know, it worked last time and here you go, Albertsons, it's $10, you know, or whatever you do. Uh, it, it didn't work again. It, it, it only worked once. And then after it was fulfilled, its purpose was fulfilled, it was, would stand as a record, but that's it. These elements of the old covenant, the old agreement are the checks that have been fulfilled. They serve as a record, but they're no longer able to transfer value. They're they're no longer able to have the spiritual significance that they had when they were in effect. They've been fulfilled. And we can look at them, we can appreciate them, and we can even appreciate what they represented and what they've taught us and what they taught the people before Jesus came. But they, they can't be used again. And they won't be used again. But still, it's important for us to look at them because they were so significant to that time leading up to Jesus. 
And one of the most significant of all these days was one of the most holy days in all of Israel. And it was called the Day of Atonement. It was on this day that the sins of the people were, were dealt with. And it's not that other days sin offerings were not made through the year, but on this special day, it was kind of a wholesale dealing with the sins of all the people, the sins of the whole nation, even the, the, the purification of the temple and of the priest, and all of these things had to, to happen. It was one really big day. And here's what God instructed his people to do on that day in Leviticus 16. This is how Aaron is to enter the most holy place. First, he must bring a young bull for a sin offering a ram for a burnt offering. He's to put it on the sacred linen tunic with linen undergarments next to his body. He's to tie the linen sash around him and put on the linen turban. And these are sacred garments, so he must bathe himself with water before he puts them on. And from the Israelite community, he is to take two male goats for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. And Aaron is to offer the bull for his own sin, offering to make... Uh, atonement for himself and his household. And then he is to take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And he's to cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it for a sin offering. But the goat chosen by lot as the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the wilderness as a scapegoat. When Aaron had finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall bring forth the live goat, and he is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all of their sins, and put them on the goat's head. And he shall send the goat away into the wilderness in the care of someone appointed for the task. And the goat will carry on itself all their sins to a remote place, and the man shall release it in the wilderness. And this is to be a lasting ordinance for you. On the tenth day of the seventh month, you must deny yourselves and not do any work, whether native-born or foreigner residing among you, because on this day atonement will be made for you, to cleanse you. Then before the Lord you will be clean from all your sins. It is a day of Sabbath rest, and you must deny yourselves. It is a lasting ordinance. The priest who is anointed and ordained to succeed his father as high priest is to make atonement. He's to put on the sacred linen garments and make atonement for the most holy place, for the tent of meeting, for the altar, for the priests, and all the members of the community. This is to be a lasting ordinance for you. Atonement is to be made once a year for all the sins of the Israelites. And it was done as the Lord commanded Moses. You see, this was the, the one day of the year that the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and offer a sacrifice for the sin of of the people. Jesus completely fulfilled the day of atonement. He completely fulfilled it. And the writer of Hebrews tells us how. See, first, Jesus was the sinless high priest, the better high priest. 
So the writer of Hebrews, he describes the, the temple and all the, the holy of holies, and then he goes on to tell us this in Hebrews 6, 9, or 9, 6 through 12. When everything had been arranged, that is all the articles and all of the sacrifices and stuff, this priest entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry, but only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing that by this, the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed for as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They're only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. But when Christ came, as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater, more perfect tabernacle. That is not made with human hands. That is to say, not part of this creation. He did not enter by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. See, earlier in Hebrews, the writer says this about Jesus, Therefore, since we have this great high priest who's ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, empathize with our weakness, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Yet he did not sin. He was sinless. The other priests had to make offerings and sacrifices for them, Selves and for the, all the articles, Jesus didn't sin. Then Hebrews 7 says, Now there have been many of those priests since the death prevented them from continuing in office. But since Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he's able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the, high, above the heavens. Unlike other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as a high priest men in all their weakness, but the oath which came after the law appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever. Perfect forever. And then back to Hebrews 9. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they're outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciousness from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. That those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom set to free them from the sins committed under the first covenant. You see, the high priest was the one who was our mediator. He stood in between God and the people. He brought the offerings between the people and God, asking for forgiveness. Now Jesus is the one who does that. Jesus is the one who does that. And those other human priests were imperfect, but Jesus was the ultimate 
mediator because one, he never dies. And two, he's perfect. He's perfect. He didn't come from Aaron's bloodline. Rather, he superseded those bloodlines. He was from a priesthood that was before Aaron's bloodline. Because he came from heaven. Jesus is the great high priest, the fulfillment, the ultimate high priest. But even more, Jesus was the fulfillment of the sacrifice of atonement. Leviticus 13.9, Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it for a sin offering. John 1, 5-7, this is the message we've heard from him and we declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. The writer of Hebrews explains it again. When Christ came as a high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater, more perfect tabernacle. That's not made with human hands. That is to say, not part of this creation. He did not enter by the blood of goats and calves, but he entered by the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. In the case of a will, in verse 16, it's necessary to prove the death of one who's made it. Because a will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who's, who's made it is living. This is why when the first covenant was not put into effect without blood, this is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every command of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water and scarlet wool and branches of hyssop and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. And he said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and everything used in the ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. But Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only the copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself. Now to appear for us in God's presence... Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. You see, the people of God had to offer sacrifices year after year after year. They went through this process year after year. But Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice. He was the one for all sacrifice. His blood that was spilled was the ultimate cleansing agent. 
You know, sometimes people wonder why, why Christians talk about blood so much. Right? Are you guys like vampires or something? You know, they, they, they look at us and kind of wonder, wow, you guys kind of have a, a little bit of an obsession uh, with blood. Are we goths or something? But, but we have to stop and wonder, why are we talking about it, right? Think about this covenant with God for a moment. It was established with humanity because we messed up. We messed up. And when we messed up, the penalty for that sin was death. And sometimes that death is something we experience right now, right? The death of a relationship, the, the death of these kinds of things that happen that are natural consequences, right? But ultimately, the death that we experience because of sin is spiritual and it is eternal if our sin isn't dealt with. So the covenant with God's people, everything was sprinkled with blood because in many ways the covenant did not fully take effect until the person died. Think about it. Right? The, ultimately, the rewards of the covenant are not realized in this life. They're realized in the next life. They're realized when we enter into eternity. And so that blood stood in the place of that. I realize when we die and are standing in front of God at the end of the age, and so it acts as a will. And the blood was symbolic of that reality, but it was imperfect. Why? Because it wasn't our own. Otherwise, we would have to die over and over and over again. It was a check. And the blood of Jesus was the actual funds, the actual money that got transferred. Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate blood penalty for our sin. And he fully fulfilled the blood sacrifice of atonement that they celebrated. And there's one final element of this day of atonement that I want to emphasize. Jesus was the fulfillment of the scapegoat. Leviticus 6, 7 through 10, it says, Then he is to take two goats and present them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. He's to cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goats, uh, the goat whose lot falls to the Lord, and sacrifice it for a sin offering. But the other goat, chosen by lot as a scapegoat, shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for the making of atonement by sending it into the wilderness as a scapegoat. I was wondered what happened to the goat. You, you, you might be thinking that the scapegoat probably got the better deal, right? He, he's thinking, okay, this is okay. You're going to put all this on my head and then you're going to let me go out in the wilderness. I also often wondered what would happen if the goat followed you back, right? Oh no, the scapegoat came back. What do we do now? Well, tradition has it, and even the Hebrew word for scapegoat has, might have it in its etymology, a, a clue. The, the goat was not merely released. Well, it was released. It was released on a very steep, craggy cliff. Yeah. It was released into the wilderness. And it never came back, okay? Guaranteed as it tumbled down the hill and, and, and died. And isn't it interesting that it was always taken out away from the tabernacle? It was always taken out away from the city, you see, from the very beginning, God was laying the groundwork in his people for the idea of their sins being laid on someone else, and that someone else being taken out of the city and killed. Isaiah 53, 
Who has believed our message? And whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like the one from whom we hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. He was, a, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter as the sheep before the shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people. He was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and the witch and with the rich in his death. And though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth, yet the, it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though, though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his, offering, his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied by the knowledge by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Jesus was our scapegoat. God put the sin, not just of me and not just of you, but the sin of the world on Jesus. And he was taken out of the city and crucified. John 2, my dear children, I write this to you so that no one will sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He's the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus was our scapegoat. He voluntarily took on the sins of the whole world. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for us. He was without sin, but he took them on. The priest would lay his head on the his hands on the on the goat and would confess all of the sins of the people and all of their wickedness and all of their rebellion, and then they would take the goat away. So when Jesus is hanging on the cross, he's saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? as the weight and the sin of the world was laid on him. And he was taken into the wilderness. He was the ultimate fulfillment of the scapegoat. 
So Jesus was not only the particular fulfillment of the individual elements of this covenant, right? Jesus was the ultimate expression of atonement. The ultimate expression of atonement. You see, atonement made relationship possible. Atonement paid for the sin. It took away the sin. Without atonement, relationship with God was and is impossible. God is light. In God, there's no darkness at all. We can't be in relationship with God without atonement for our rebellion, for our sins. While the ritual instructed by God provided a vehicle, it was merely a shadow of the things to come. Jesus Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of the Day of Atonement. He's the ultimate high priest who mediates between us and God. He didn't have to make sacrifices for himself because he was sinless. He wasn't getting replaced by a new high priest here and there and everywhere because he is forever. He's the ultimate sacrifice. His blood was substituted for mine. By his blood we're healed. He was the the one who cast lots for the Lord. He was the sacrifice. And not just that, he was the ultimate scapegoat. Voluntarily taking on my sin and then experiencing the penalty for my sin. He's the fulfillment of the day of atonement. So what do we do with that? I mean, it's not just some random theological point, some lovely historical, you know, context. The question is, how do we have that apply to us? You see, the Day of Atonement was not just something that the priests did and the people went on with their lives. In fact, the the Day of Atonement was a Sabbath. It was a day where everything stopped where everyone denied themselves, even fasting from food. It was a holy day. It was a day that was set aside. In other words, atonement was not just passively received. All the work was done by the priest. All the work was done by those who were doing the sacrifices and sprinkling the blood and all of that. That's what made it effectual. But the people participated in it. You see, they were repenting of their sins. They were contemplating the covenant agreement they had made with God. They were resting from all their work so they could just focus on God. They were actively participating in receiving forgiveness. They didn't make it effectual, but they participated in it. For us, it's the actions of Jesus that provides the way. It's Jesus substituting himself, the high priest, the blood, the scapegoat. He did all the work and makes it all effectual. But that's not where it ends because we're invited to participate in what he's done. Just like they were invited on that day of atonement to participate in what was happening, we're invited to do that too. We're invited to repent. To repent of our rebellion, to repent of our sins, repent of the things we've done that that have pushed us away from God. We're invited to allow him to mediate for us. We enter into the throne room with boldness, says Paul. 
John says, I don't want anyone to sin. But if you do sin, we have a great high priest in heaven who mediates for us. We're invited to let his blood be the sacrifice for us. Whoever believes and receives, that's it. We're invited to allow him to be our scapegoat, to take our sin, to take our rebellion, and put it on him. And my question for you today, wherever you might be, if you're in this room or if you're just listening to me, my question is, Have you done that? Have you participated in the work that Jesus has done in fulfilling the day of atonement? Will you live for him? Will you stop and reflect, what do I need to repent of? Will you stop and say, Jesus, I want you to mediate for me. Will you stop and say, thank you for the blood that was spilled for me. Thank you for taking on the sins of the world and being crushed in crucifixion. And since you paid my price, here's my life. A living sacrifice. Reasonable spiritual worship, says Paul. I want to invite you to do that with Jesus. Have that conversation with Jesus. If you haven't participated in that personally, then do it today. Say a prayer. Just say, Jesus, please save me. Take away my sins. I confess them to you. Thank you for what you've done for me. I will live for you. There's no magic formula words to pray. It's a prayer from the heart to Jesus, recognizing what he's done. And I invite you today. That's what the Day of Atonement was for. Let this be your Day of Atonement as you recognize Jesus, the ultimate fulfillment of that incredible feast, that incredible moment, that day of atonement. Let's pray. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much for what you've done for us. You sent your Son to save the world. You sent your Son to be an atoning sacrifice for us to be both priest, the ultimate high priest, the perfect high priest, to be the blood that would be spilled on the altar, and to be the scapegoat, taking our sins into the wilderness, taking yourself and and being found crushed for us. We are not worthy. We just look and wonder at what you've done. I pray, Lord, that as we recognize your fulfillment, as we recognize what you've done, that we would worship you with our life. Lord, that we would ask for your forgiveness and we would repent of our sins and then commit to follow you. Thank you, Lord, for fulfilling the Day of Atonement. In Jesus' name, amen.